This is Gramercy, the podcast that highlights the stories of those who live and work on the margins of society. I'm your host, Corey Malat. Thank you for coming on this journey with me. Welcome to Season 2. This season, the focus is on listening to the voices of our Black friends, neighbors, and strangers in order that we might better learn from their experiences of what it's like being Black in America. My guest today is Greg Goods, a senior at the University of Houston who will be graduating this May with a broadcast journalism degree. During his free time, he records and produces his very own podcast called On the Spot, where he discusses all things sports, entertainment, and music. Our conversation was so eclectic and informative. The topics range from the impact of hurricanes on neighborhood culture to politics invading sports and how colorism is hurting the black community. We start off the conversation with some hot sports opinions. Greg and I connected over his love of sports. What a fun conversation this was. This is what an interview looks like when you just follow where the conversation leads. I have to confess though, as you will hear, I was way out of my element. I didn't know half the names of the coaches and athletes Greg was throwing around, and you can tell, but I was sure having fun and was very interested. I was probably the worst sports conversation partner Greg's ever had, hands down. But boy, did I have a ton of desire to listen and learn more, and he was so gracious with me. Greg brings a young, important, and balanced perspective to our conversation. And one last note, I do apologize ahead of time for some bad audio quality. I was having some technical difficulties during this recording. Thank you for your gracious understanding of these little glitches. And now, here's Greg. Well, Greg, I'm very thankful that you chose to join me this morning. Thank you so much for getting up early and choosing to have a conversation and share your story with me. Oh, no problem. Thank thank you for having me. Excellent. If you could invite three people to a party or dinner, um, whether they're dead or alive, would they be sports people? Or are you going to be, are you going to surprise me with who you would invite and why? Okay. Um... That's, that's, that's interesting. Um, I have one person that I would want to have dinner with would definitely be uh, Michelle Obama. One of them would be Michelle Obama. Yes. Um, man, she's just amazing. She she's is. Really just, man, she's very underrated. People do not talk enough about her. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. My second one would be Oprah Winfrey. Uh, I'll say that because we are birthday buddies. We share the same birthday. Oh, and- wonderful. I've always like I'm not even lying to you. Every time my birthday comes, like I send her like a message, like thinking like she may like you know. Yes. <laughs> I'm just like, hey, either I need to you know, either she's gonna find it or I'm gonna get famous enough uh, enough to you know get in contact with her for real, for real. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna make this happen before you know before you know she gets too old and it's, and it's too late. Yeah. But I definitely need her on there. And finally, I'll go ahead and put LeBron James. LeBron. Uh huh. I'll definitely do that. Uh, actually, no, I can't do that. Carmelo. Carmelo's my Carmelo. favorite. Carmelo Anthony. I'll have a dinner with that man. Those, those will be my top three. Mm. That sounds like a really cool dinner. And did you ever watch Michelle Obama's uh, Becoming documentary on Netflix? Yes, I Wasn't did. Wasn't that I did. 
I was so impressed. That was really good. It's it's amazing to see, you know, Michelle Obama, especially outside of the uh, Oval Office. Yes. See what she's been doing. Um, Yes. It's really been remarkable. Well, could you share a little bit of your background, your history with me, what it was like growing up being you and some of the wonderful things about your childhood and some of the things that were challenging that kind of made you who you are today? Okay. Um, I started off um, growing up. I was born in A-Leaf, Texas. We moved to Humble when I was about three or four. So growing up, um, I realized that my parents were, you know, they, they were pretty much financially well off. They were probably either middle class or at least above middle class. My mom was a microbiologist. My dad was a music teacher. They did very well for themselves and I'm the only child. So it, it, wasn't, it wasn't a real hassle, um, but they grew up um, not the wealthiest, pretty poor. So the way that they utilized money, the way that they viewed money, mm-hmm. the way I thought about money was obviously two different things. They were oh, a, a lot of saving, a lot mm-hmm. of you know, cutting corners. And in my mind, I'm like, why are we cutting corners? We have money. Like, what, what are we doing? You know, that was my mindset at the time. And I was in a school where um, I grew up. It was very diverse, but it was predominantly white at the time. I came in right at the time where there was a shift. Um, it was right around the time Hurricane Katrina happened. Oh, yeah. Hurricane Katrina came and it brought in a lot of people uh, from New Orleans. And it kind of had, you know, uh, like my white friends and, and the white families, they started moving more up north as soon as they got there. It was just kind really? of like, it was a very uh, weird shift because um, the housing, they started dropping down some of the housing or some of the housing um, in the neighborhood was like four um, victims that just couldn't find a home. So they kind of like put them in, in different little areas. Uh-huh. And that kind of just made white families kind of move more up north because obviously the crime rate just started kind of growing up a little bit more. And that's what kind of pushed them away. Mm. Um, and then I'm seeing like my diversity turn into from all white to pretty much predominantly black. Um, and they're all from New Orleans and that's mm-hmm. a different culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, and for me, I'm not really seeing, you know, my, my parents did a great job of like, not necessarily hiding racism, but, you know, they kind of sheltered me a little bit with what was really going on, um, what was going on. So I'm happy go lucky in the morning, like, <laughs> hey, good morning. Yeah. And, you know, we have some people from New Orleans, hey, shut up. Like, what are you talking about? Like, <laughs> why are you so happy? And I'm just like, yeah. you know, so I was always kind of like that kid that was, you know, always kind of laughing and, and kind of kind of uplifting people. And that's what, that's what kind of had people gravitate towards me because, you know, they couldn't stay mad at me long enough to just, you know, be in that mood. It's really weird being in the school where there's a lot of um, financial, like the range of finances. Mm-hmm. It's not like you're in a private school and everybody's pretty much mm-hmm. at the same or stagnant right here. Yeah. You have some people that are just very poor and then you have some people that are just kind of really financially well off you have like a middle ground. So mm-hmm. um, that kind of was eye-opening um, with my friends when I would just say, you know, how come you can't just do this? And it's just like, well, I can't afford that. And it's like, oh, okay, that makes sense. So mm-hmm. it kind of made me have a different perspective and made me um, be a more helpful person. Like I will always like, try to help and, and, and do different things. Cause I mean, when you're an only child and you want siblings, you know, you're always yes. the one friend, you want friends. 
Um, because you can't, you know, you don't have anybody at the house except for adults, and adults are boring at the age. Of <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, when yeah. You, nobody wants to play with their toys by themselves. So exactly. Um, so I mean, I had a whole bunch of friends that I was just like, hey, you want this or you want that, or you know, we just kind of like shared. And even <laughs> people that were just not financially well off, they, you know, they had they shared what they had um, for the people that they love. So it was it was really cool. That's interesting that you say that hurricane Katrina was kind of a real, a massive changing point in a lot of things. Like it kind of hinges on how you saw things after that from then on, because I don't think a lot of the rest of the country knows how many people fled to Texas, especially Houston um, right after Katrina, that was a massive outpouring of people. And that is bound to change any culture that has already grown up in a certain area that I, I can see now what you're saying. I know a few people who moved. I was in Dallas at the time, and I know a few people who moved up there, but the majority fled to Houston, right? And, it was, and it's crazy because Hurricane Katrina not only affected that that culture, it affected how people were um, viewing hurricanes afterwards. Yes. Um. So nobody, not a lot of people know about this, but like the year after that, there was another hurricane called Hurricane, Hurricane Rita. Mm-hmm. And like the very next year, and all we saw during the Hurricane Katrina before the reports was all of these reporters talking to um, the New Orleans people and that I'm not leaving, da da da, and we gonna stay here, ride or die, we're cool, I'm not going nowhere. Mm-hmm. And the footage of all that flood scared a lot of people. So when Hurricane Rita came, Houston was just like, we're not, you know, we're not, we're not being stupid. Like we need to move, we mm-hmm. need to leave. Mm-hmm. So my dad was just like, you know, we got to leave. And I had a grandmother in San Antonio, so we traveled down to San Antonio. Mm-hmm. And that was one of the worst car rides I've ever had. It was horrible. Um, it takes about three hours to get from Houston to San Antonio. That car ride from Houston to San Antonio was 17 hours. Oh my it was 17 hours. It took me a long time to enjoy road trips after that. I bet it did. <laughs> 17 hours. Um, I had a little Game Boy. That, that died within the first hour. I don't know what you do. Dad, my dad was just like, hey, read a book. I wasn't trying to read that. I was eight years old. It was bad. It was really, really bad. Um, and then Harvey came. How many yeah. years after Rita? Um, that was well, maybe 10 years after um, Katrina? Yeah, well, Katri- well, you had Katrina, then Rita. Um, and what's crazy about Rita, we didn't even get anything. It was just heavy rain. Mm-hmm. And that really made us. <laughs> oh, I bet it did after 17 hours in the car. Then, then after Hurricane Rita, Hurricane Ike came in 2010. Um, and that one wasn't, like I said, n- none of these hurricanes really just destroyed our houses or anything. But we were out of power. And when you think about out of power, you're thinking, okay, that, you know, that's not too bad. That was bad. <laughs> that it was is bad. Because you forget about how, you know, what electricity be doing. You know, yeah. we had to go drive to a local Burger King to charge up cell phones and stuff. And yeah. it was bad. And, and my dad didn't believe in generators at the time. And I just, I just, wanted, I just wanted him to buy a generator. And I was like, Dad, we can afford this. Please come on. Mm-hmm. I'm on a fan. Something. Mm-hmm. And not budging. And um, that we had no electricity for about 12, 12 days. And that was the longest 12 days. Like, that was in 2010. And That's then hurricane, hurricane Harvey came in 2017. Oh, 17. Okay. So that was about three years ago. Mm-hmm. And um, thankfully, that was probably like one of the first one, first hurricanes where we we had electricity. 
we were fine on the north side of Houston. We really didn't get much but just heavy rain. So I was thankful for that. But a lot of other people weren't as fortunate enough to do that. So uh, well, as soon as I graduate, I'm, I'm Devin. <laughs> I can't. <laughs> it's time for me to do something. I mean, I need to see another national uh, uh, natural disaster. I'm tired of seeing the same natural disaster. The same kind. <laughs> and, not, and not get snow either. I love snow and I never get it. I've seen snow like three times in my life or five times, like real snow. Yeah. Like times in my life. It's, it's time. It's time for different scenery. Um, I went to Boston uh, for like one mm. of my college. Um, nice. One of my college like visits. Um, it was in February and it was snowing and I was 19 years old and I was a kid. I was yeah. doing all the things I wanted to do as a kid mm -hmm. and I was doing snow angels and-, and Good for you. Oh, what are you doing? I'm like, yo, like, I don't know when I'm gonna see this again. I was oh. making my snowman. I realized that you can't, um, you can't ball up this snowball too hard or then it actually hurts. Mm -hmm. I'm looking at these white kids on Macy's when they throw it in the in the in the yep. commercial thing and like, oh, it's soft snow. That is hard. It is. It hurts. Yeah. So it, when it hit my cheek, I was like, yeah, I don't like, like ice. Yeah. <laughs> like, yo, I don't like that. And then like after two or three days, I was like, yeah, okay, I don't know about the Boston snow. That that's a little different. Mm -hmm. um, maybe I, maybe I'll go more into like maybe Dallas got some snow that I'll, I'll tolerate or something. But yeah, it, it was nice. It was a nice experience for sure. Oh, good for you. So what are you doing now? How is your life progressing? What did you choose to major in? Um, are you working? Where is the direction of your life headed now? Uh, right now, I'm getting ready to graduate uh, from the University of Houston uh, with a broadcast journalism degree uh, with a minor in human resource management. I'm a play-by-play -play, uh, commentator for the women's basketball team um, at our school. It's kind of been a little bit, uh, well, last year was a lot more, it was a little better because you could be on the court and for sure. be there. Um, and they weren't as good. So I had more opportunities to go there because we can't do um, televised games or else they'll have to pay us. And mm -hmm. So <laughs> I can't uh, imagine how hard that job actually is. I really respect the people who are able to like, talk on the fly like that and remember things and facts and statistics that quickly for a play-by-play -play. we got the we got the cheat sheet on there you know they you know they have like the, the the statistics the analysts they all come in each quarter and they give you different things and you highlight the things that look interesting um those are fine what's bad what's you know what gives me anxiety is the away team and their last names and like oh. they, Oh my, I'm just, I'm like, okay, because they give you a name guy, but even then it's just like, oh, mm -hmm. especially somebody from Europe or somebody, it's, it's tough. And you're messing up in public. That's the hardest thing. You can't just be like, sorry, y'all, I, I messed up. Like they are taking it personally. So I can't imagine how hard. But the best way to do it is to do exactly what you do. Hey, my bad. Yeah. That's the only way you can get through it. Because if you if you fret on them too much, then they'll really attack you. But ah, yeah, you definitely don't know. Uh -huh. If you roll it off, you're like, yeah, okay. Yeah, tomato, tomato. For the, sure. the pros are a little bit less, you know, for sure. For sure. Um, well, I really like your podcast. It's called On the Spot Podcast. And what I appreciate about what you said is that it's about sports, music, entertainment, but what's not being discussed in those areas. 
I think that is genius. And what caused you to come up with that idea? What's not being discussed? Because yeah, everybody likes to talk about sports, entertainment, and music. How did that idea come into your head? Um, that idea came into my head because everybody talks about it. You know, everybody talks because not only are you um, competing with the main broadcasters, mm-hmm. you know, across the world and ESPN, you're competing with your everyday person that's doing a podcast now because we're in quarantine. Everybody has, everybody in mama has a podcast mm-hmm. and everybody's talking about sports and everybody's going to talk about LeBron James, you know, like mm-hmm. at some point you have to stand out and, and, and create a niche that nobody's really talking about. So, I mean, there'd be topics that um, I would like to talk about when it comes to, um, I don't know if you're like familiar with the Pittsburgh Steelers, um, Mike Tomlin, the head coach, the black head coach, he has yet to have a losing season mm-hmm. as a Pittsburgh Steeler. And at the time they were like nine and oh, but last year, uh, Ben Roethlisberger was out. They had a lot of team issues mm-hmm. and they're really about to like call this man's job. Like they really wanted like some people in the fan base wanted him fired um, because they were just, you know, they just like, they didn't like the direction where things were going. Mm-hmm. But to come back in retrospect one year later, and it's still, you know, he has an undefeated season at that mm-hmm. time. I was like, not, not a lot of people are talking about how good this black head coach of Mike Tomlin is. Mm-hmm. And, you know, almost called for his job and he has yet to have a losing season. Yet there's like plenty of coaches that are going 0-16. Yep. You want to get rid of this man? And, you know, like nobody was talking about that. They're just talking about how great the Steelers were. And I'm just like, yo, like tip your hat off to this man. So there's different things like that. I'll bring in Steelers fans to see how mm-hmm. they feel about it. Mm-hmm. Um, or we'll just talk about different things um, outside of sports, outside of music. Um, some some funny things going to and, and just poke fun. People saying some outlandish things on, on basketball that I have to check them on. Like yo, you, that's not happening. Like you, I, don't mm-hmm. know, like, I don't know why you said that. Yeah, so, yeah it's kind of poke fun for it. Well, what you were, I want to speak to something you were just saying. How do you feel this is true? That I've heard several um, black people say that they have to be twice as good to get recognition or um, be respected in whatever uh, genre or, or career they're in as a white person, they have to work twice as hard and do twice as good. Um, that speaks to kind of like what you were talking about, Mike Tomlin, like, yeah. he, any, anybody else in those shoes would not have been considered to be fired. So did you think that that is primarily based on race or, um, do you believe that to be a true statement? I definitely believe that's a true statement. I also believe that sometimes when somebody is doing well for so long, we tend to forget how good they are mm-hmm. um, when they have a, a lackluster season or a mediocre season. We kind of forget because even with Bill Belichick um, in, in New mm-hmm. England, um, he's kind of regressed back compared to him just winning Super Bowls all the time. Mm-hmm. So there's a there's a little bit at play like you forget like people ha- don't have that mindset. Oh, wow. I didn't know he's never had a losing season before. Like nobody really thought, nobody talked about it because nobody really knew or just yes. Of it. And I think a quote from John Thompson, on uh, one of my favorite uh, college basketball coaches, black head coach from uh, Georgetown, he recently just passed away. Uh-huh, I uh huh. I remember his one quote always resonated for me. Like black coaches or black individuals in the sporting industry, like they never get a chance to fail. They're never really given the real opportunity to fail. Uh, when 
when somebody like John Calipari or somebody else, they, they have a college gig or pro gig and they fall flat on their face, they get fired, but then, you know, they're reevaluated within the next two years and get another job or they get something else that's, you know, in their realm and, and they say it's a good hire. With a black coach, it's almost like they're expected to have immediate success or it's just like you're never going to see them again. For the life of me, I don't know why Mark Jackson does not have a coaching job. That's not cool. Yeah, because failure is part of our growth process. You have to see where you went wrong, what you've done wrong, the decisions that, you, oh, I should have made this choice instead. And if you're not given that freedom to fail, I can't imagine what it's like to work in that environment of having to always make every decision count. Yeah, it's, just, it's like when, when, when you see some Black coaches fail, it's just kind of like, oh, well, or even if he he's about to get another job or there is he's in consideration for a job. It's just kind of like, oh, well, you know what he did in, in USC, da, 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 da. He, he, he stunk it up. Um, but, you know, like John Kyle Perry, like he wasn't always at Kentucky. You know, he, he had his stint um, with the New Jersey Nets and did horrible, like mm-hmm. God awful horrible. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he, he got a chance to go back and, and go to Kentucky and now he's, one of the best college coaches of all time, but nobody really, nobody reflects on New Jersey like that. You know what I mean? Some people don't even remember that he was a New Jersey Nets coach. So um, I'm just waiting for one of the, one of these black coaches to have one of those kind of um, opportunities to just, Mm -hmm. you know, right there wrong. Like one person that comes to mind is like Charlie Strong. Um, He was a head coach for, um, he was a head coach for Louisville. And then he went to um, university of Texas um, for a little bit, but he he stunk it up in at he stunk it up at UT. Well, granted, UT hasn't been the same since Vince Young, so I mean uh, I don't I don't put any stock into that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But I mean that kind of just kind of tainted him going into his next job because everybody kept on reflecting on UT. So I'm hopefully wherever he's at, I hope he's doing well. But yeah, I, people you that, know coach, black coaches are, are are allowed to fail. So sure. Isn't it true that saying that um, people have very short-term memories when it comes to sports and politics? Exactly. It's, it's really all about uh, what, what have you done for me lately? Exactly. We so make I, it very selfish almost. Yeah, that's what that's why that's why none of these come Dallas Cowboys fan. This is oh, why are I'm you? McCarthy. I don't like Mike McCarthy right now. What have you done for me lately? I don't care about the, the Super Bowl that you got for Aaron Rodgers. What have you done for me lately? Look bad. You look mm-hmm. really, really bad right now. Well, talk about being given a chance. How long did, um, who was the coach of the Cowboys who was just fired last year? Jason Garrett. Garrett. How long did he have to mess up year after year? I mean, nice guy and everything. I know my husband's a lifelong Cowboys fan, so I've heard all of it. I've listened. I've heard all of the the ticket conversations and I've heard all of these things. But Jason Garrett was given years Oh my God. I, I think it's just because he was just a nice guy. He yes. Cowboys organization. Yes. Man, I wanted him gone in 2012. Like mm-hmm. he was here too long. And I was like, oh my God. And, yeah. and was was bad. You know, I'm such a diehard cowboy fan. And I, you know, I slander my team sometimes when they do bad. I'll get on Twitter and start ranting. Mm-hmm. I remember one time, like, Mike McCarthy really just did something that I just really didn't like. And I was like, wow, have I been too hard on Jason Garrett? <laughs> Is it me? <laughs> and I was like, wow, because Jason Garrett wouldn't even do this. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, he would yeah. never have us in this kind of position. So, uh, you know, my hat's off to Jason Garrett. I think he was just a really great offensive coordinator. 
Yes. But everybody's just not um, built to be a head coach and, and some <laughs> head coaches are not built to be coordinators. So it's just, it's kind of like a hit or miss sometimes. So, mm -hmm. Do you feel that Romo, I know this is completely off topic, but yeah. do you feel that Romo missed his chance at a Super Bowl because of bad coaching and a bad uh, offensive line and all of that? Do you think he could have gone all the way had he had the right people around him? Absolutely. Um, Jason Garrett held him back. Um, I think the offensive line was horrible. Yeah, in 2014, uh, we were robbed. Okay, that, mm -hmm. that, I caught that ball. Totally, yeah. And we, that was our Super Bowl year. I'm yep. one of these guys where I'm just like, you know, we really could have gone to the Super Bowl. Yep. Like, I'm not even like, we could have gone, at least, yep. at least that year. And I was in San Diego at the time. Like, I was, I was doing a trip in San Diego. So, so I'm out here eating Cheerios and, like, watching the watching uh, football game. game. I've never done that. Like, 9.30 in the morning. Yeah, I've been so accustomed to like the noon time uh -huh. at 3 30 p.m. So I'm out here waking up and I'm like, Yeah, this already kick off. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I saw that. I was like, wow, okay, yeah. But I think Tony Romo had Tony Romo not been injured, um, that Dak's official rookie year. Yeah. I think if Tony Romo didn't get injured and he played that that year, I think that would have been. I think he could have he could have took us there because Dak was young and he was good, but I feel like. With Tony's experience, we would have got over Green Bay. It's something, just something about Green Bay. We just can't get over. I know. I know. Well, thank you for sharing your opinions on the Cowboys with me. My husband's going to be thrilled. <laughs> it's nothing I've not already heard a million times, but it's nice to have that justification. See, somebody else thinks the same thing. <laughs> yeah. They just think we're crazy. We're not crazy. See, isn't that the beautiful thing? I think sports really pulls people together. Well, I don't know. I guess there's two sides of that coin. Sports can really pull us together and we find our commonalities and we appreciate a lot of the same things. But then I know it sometimes somehow just degrades into some really negative comments um, regarding different people or races. Has that been your experience when you're visiting this about this topic with some of your guests that there's a lot of commonality, but the underside of that is some really strong opinions that might be very negative. And it's and it's weird, like even putting it in, like you know, it's even weird to like kind of admit it because I used to be somebody that just said, no, 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 that's not true. Mm -hmm. But as soon as you put politics into anything that you do, when you put politics into sports, that's when it starts to become shaky and it starts to become a, a real deal issue. Mm -hmm. and it, there's times where, you know, you know, political statements need to be done and heard, but I think overall um, sports was really here and made to kind of get away and take a break from the real world mm -hmm. and from real life issues. And when you bring those real life and real, you know, world issues into where we're supposed to have a safe haven, mm -hmm. that's when it starts to get, um, that's when it starts to get negative because mm -hmm. with politics, there's no, okay, good game. Like no. there's no, oh, okay, better luck next time because people are so into politics so much, you know, it's, it's taken to heart. And mm -hmm. with sports, it may be taken to heart, but at the end of the day, we know it's, it's just, just a game. Um, So it's, it's really kind of like walking on eggshells even when you start doing political statements um, in sports because granted, I'm a, I'm a big supporter of my, you know, of my black people and, and everything that we do. Um, but at the same time, I do understand when um, people that are not my race 
trying to say, yo, I'm, I'm cutting the TV off. I don't see this anymore. I, I get it. But even though they're going to get slandered for saying something like that, I understand it because when you see it on CNN and you see it on ABC and now you see it in your own sports, now it's just like, okay, I know it's unavoidable and I know it's happening. Um, I really just want to enjoy something, you know, mm-hmm. bash with the 25-8. And I think if we had like a, a common ground, and I mean, honestly, if everybody just agreed, it would be, be easy. That would be easy. <laughs> there we so go. People are steady, you know. But I think with black people, I think their thing is because you steady ignore CNN and and, and as you ignore everything else, I know you're not going to ignore sports. So mm-hmm. we're going to ingrain it in sports. Mm-hmm. So understand how serious we are. So I get that. I yeah, I appreciate your perspective on that. I, I'm curious what your perspective is on like Kaepernick, um, because that is in, um, bringing in. Um, politics into sports, but I also understand his point of view where, um, look at, there's a lot of attention here. I can bring up this issue and a lot of people can see, wow, he must feel serious about this because he's willing to risk his career, risk his everything to make this stand and to make this stand in a very respectful, polite, peaceful way. Um, I'm curious as to your thoughts on that. And do you think this has been helpful for the Black Lives Matter movement or to bring awareness to more people? Do you think it's really changed anybody's opinions, especially, um, you know, the people, white people who are watching? Um, when he first did it, um, when, when, when it happened in 2016, granted, something that he did, uh, something like what he did I don't even think anybody really expected that to go about the way it went. Yeah. I think a part of that was just due to just kind of like the ignorance of everything. Like nobody really knew all the details of, of everything. I think um, with me personally, I was commend, like I was commending him. I was like, yeah, go cap, go. I just didn't think it was something that should have been career ending. You know, that was the thing <laughs> that kind of threw me through a loop and, and seeing a whole bunch of white people talk about you know, we're not respecting our flag and all this different stuff that they're doing. But as soon as I found out that somebody that was in the military told him, hey, just take a knee instead of just sit down, take a knee and that would be good enough for us. And I was like, if it's good enough for the military that's fighting for us, like, why is it, why is it an issue for you? Like now it makes it seem like it's, it's bigger than what you're mm-hmm. making it. Um, mm-hmm. So it really didn't, in my opinion, I don't think it really had a real big change on people until recently, until George Floyd, mm-hmm. like the George Floyd thing. Once George Floyd happened, then we were able to realize, and we were able to go back and go back in 2016, be like, okay, this is what we were talking about. Mm-hmm. And this is when we started seeing white people kind of just change their view on how different things are. Roger Goodell admitting that, you know, it was, you know, it was wrong to do X, Y, and Z. And that's all black people really want, just to acknowledge when you are wrong and yes. take the steps and to do it. Don't treat, you know, don't treat it like, uh, you know, this, that, that, and the other, or, or try to bulldoze your way out of the conversation. Um, mm-hmm. just, just admit that, okay, in the past, we didn't acknowledge it like we should have. Let's focus on the here and now and, and, and keep pushing. But, you know, it ha- has to start with, okay, we realize it, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Since you enjoy talking about entertainment, sports, and music, could you tell me some of the systemic racism 
problems you see in those areas, or also not necessarily even, it doesn't have to be massive big things. It could be the microaggressions that you see uh, Black people having to deal with or push aside in order to succeed in these areas that you've noticed over your time doing this. Um, like within, within the sport? Within sports, entertainment, or music, the areas that you have a great interest in, um, maybe even journalism, since that's the area you're moving into. Do you see systemic racism being pervasive in these industries? And if so, how? I see um, with certain with certain things. Um, I'll say for football, the integration of just seeing um, I will start off with the quarterback. It just took a long time to get a black quarterback in there. Yes. And I like the I like the way we're going projectively um, of how things are going. But at first, it took forever to get a black quarterback. And then once we got to the black quarterback and we got through the, he's not smart enough to play the position. Then we got into the okay, he's black. He must be athletic and he must be able to run. You know, for him to, you know, if you're drafting him, that means he's going to be your your, your second running back. Mm -hmm. um, instead of him reading the passes and, and doing things like that. That's why I always admire Cam Newton, um, mm -hmm. just being a dual threat quarterback. Now everybody wants to be a, a running quarterback. And, you, you know, yeah. they, you know it's, it's a copycat league. Mm -hmm. um, so just seeing that evolve into what it is now, when now you have your Patrick Mahomes and Sean Watson and all that stuff, that's been great, but it's, it's, it hasn't always been like that. Um, I also think definitely this new rise. I've all, I've never I've never been a fan of how they viewed HBCUs, like for especially for football, mm -hmm. um, because it was always like you're not gonna get drafted there. Like nobody's gonna see you at an HBCU. You need to go to Ohio State, mm -hmm. yeah, UT, where you see these big cameras and the big lights are on you. Uh, but I mean, at this point. There are so many athletes that, I mean, first and foremost, you know, and everybody's not gonna make the league, okay? Everybody's not making the league, even if you are good. Yep. But if you're good enough, they're gonna find you. You're gonna get noticed. And I think this new rise, this new age of people going back to HBCUs or going to mid-majors, mm -hmm. um, just saying, hey, I'm gonna just stay at home instead of just always having 300 mm -hmm. applicants go to Kentucky for basketball mm -hmm. and 500,000 people go to Michigan, no offense, um, and go, you know, <laughs> go play football there for Harbaugh and, and Ohio State for Urban Meyer. Um, you can go to Houston or you can go to Oklahoma, Oklahoma mm -hmm. a, a smaller Oklahoma thing or anything like that. Just to, you know, because if everybody's there, guess what? You're not going to be playing. That's you're, exactly you're, the truth. You're going to be, you know, behind somebody for two, three years, and then maybe your senior year, you get to show out. Versus you go to HBCU, you get to be there, um, the starting person from day one mm -hmm. as a freshman, build up all the film that you need to give mm -hmm. all these coaches, go into the combine and, and do what you need to do. That's why I praised Deion Sanders when he took that college job um, um, at Jackson State, mm -hmm. because that now is a game changer. A lot of people looking up to Deion Sanders and he knows what he's doing because he's a Hall of Famer. So yes. he's go down there and be like, hey, I, I want to be great. Yes. And and, you know, and there's a lot of colleges that are not too happy about that because they always used to use the, oh, they don't have the facilities. Like, the facilities are not as good as ours. Like, yep. got now it's just like, okay, we got Deion Sanders. Now what? Mm -hmm. I don't care that you, that you think it's a million dollars. Deion Sanders is here. What, what can you do better than Deion Sanders? 
Right. Isn't that the truth? Well, it's the whole, it's the whole concept of being a small fish in a big pond or a big fish in a small pond, isn't it? Yeah. Um, Do you feel that black athletes are overly stereotyped? Overly stereotyped. Yeah. But I feel like white, white athletes are, are, are kind of stereotyped too. As really? Just, you know, um, Explain they, your what, opinion. Um, with white stereotypes, like the white stereotypes for, for athletes, for, I mean, for white athletes is that they're just really not that athletic. Yeah. <laughs> uh, like, just like, oh, uh, but I think that's the thing. I think black athletes are stereotyped because of their talent and mm-hmm. Because of their talent, it's assumed that they don't work hard. Mm-hmm. They're just naturally gifted. Mm-hmm. Versus this white athlete, he's the first one in, last one out. He's always here. He's you know he's yes he's yes a guy. You know he he gives it all. He gives it his effort. He's a scrappy dude. Um, versus the you know the black athletes. Oh man, he's, he's naturally gifted. Man, look at look at this talent. Uh huh. He rolls out of bed and gives you 45 points a night. You know, <laughs> so it's just yeah. like there's a stereotype of both. Um, but it's not that, you know, 45 points are 45 points. You gotta work hard to do that. Um, yes. so it's just a matter of how you take it or how how it's said. It's not what you say, it's how you say it sometimes. But yes. yeah, it's it's on both sides. There's some white, there's some white athletes that are very athletic that are not mm-hmm. getting the the praise that they need. Christian mm-hmm. McCaffrey is a very athletic man. Mm-hmm. Um, compared to, you know, everybody doesn't look like Brian Scalabrini, you know, like, you know, or, or built like Larry Bird, you know, uh-huh. you know, there's, you know, there, there's some white athletic guys that can do the same things that black athletes and, and vice versa. There's, there's a lot of black athletes that are just not really all that in shape and can't really jump like that. And exactly. you know, I, think, I think the Glenn Davis all the time, he's a great dude. He's just not the, you know, he's not the stereotypical black athlete that you're going to think about. Yeah. yeah. And those stereotypes, those are, in a sense, aren't those microaggressions? Do you ever experience microaggressions? Um, yeah, you you get some, um, but sometimes you get it within your community. Sometimes you get it within Black people. Uh, I feel like sometimes colorism is a big thing. At really? Time, where it's just kind of like, yeah, like when you're when you're when you're light skinned, you're, you're considered a little bit more softer. Really? Your darker skinned counterparts. Like there's times where you just say, oh, yeah, he's he's not that tough. But you're looking at your skin and you're thinking like, okay, he's, you know, he's the pretty boy, you know, you know, you want to, you know, he don't want to get rough with us. He don't want to get dirty with us. Um, So sometimes as light-skinned people, as myself, you have to do a little more like brash things off rip to kind of like set the tone, like, yo, please, we're not, we're not having this kind of conversation. Really? So there's times where um, I remember definitely like maybe, um, I say in the, I'll say in the seventh grade because I always wanted to play football, but my dad wouldn't let me until mm-hmm. I hit the seventh grade. Mm-hmm. He just wouldn't let me do it. Well, by the time I got to seventh grade, you know, sometimes you just gotta do a little things, you know, that you know you wouldn't normally do, mm-hmm. but you just need to just kind of get physical and a little bit more aggressive yeah. off the jump. Just kind of just say, hey, like um, I, I can I can go there if I need to, um, but I, I'm not I'm not gonna do that. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to do this every time, but I'm going to do it this first go around just to make sure there's no discussion about it. Mm-hmm. Um, rather that just be like a, a heavy hit after the whistle blows or yes. just a little nudge or just a little um, a little scuffle here and there just to kind of say, hey, I'm, I'm here. Uh, versus like the dark skin athlete. Um, it's just kind of like, hey, we are, you know, that they're just, it's just known that it's like, okay, 
the dark skin versus the light skin athlete where they just think, okay, he's, you know, he's been in the house all day. Like, you're a little softer. Yeah, you're a little softy. He just been playing this video games <laughs> and rolled around. Um, he really ain't been working hard like that, you know. So well, sure. I'm glad you brought that up because I didn't realize that was a thing, honestly. Um, I had read I- Ibram Kendi's book, How to Be an Anti-Racist. And in that book, he explains about or how he was racist even towards other black people. And I didn't think that was a thing. I didn't know you could be. And you're just explaining the same thing. You're calling it colorism. Is that pretty much identical to just being racist to your own same type of people? Um, Basically, and it it really stems from jealousy. And if you really want to go to the root of it, it it really just goes back to slavery. Yeah. You want to go all the way back to it, it goes back to slavery because, of the jealousy that comes through it. Mm-hmm. You have mm-hmm. your dark-skinned workers that are always going to be on the field, always going to be out there working on the field, mm-hmm. the worst amount of punishment, and your light-skinned people that look like me are always going to be in the house. Mm-hmm. They're going to be in the house doing all the things. So granted, they may be working hard, but it's it's not on the field labor. So there's there's definitely jealousy in there. And, and you know, you get the, the house, like the, the slurs that come into there, the, the coon, the Uncle Toms, all the mm-hmm. different comes with it when you when you don't necessarily agree with everything that they have to say mm-hmm. um um but it's it's but it also it, it goes through everything goes through everything like um the stereotype that dark darker skin women have a have more problems when it comes to hair versus a, a light-skinned woman mm. uh, a light-skinned woman's hair is a lot more socially acceptable sometimes when it's an early state um viewed by people outside of our race mm-hmm. versus a black woman that wears her hair natural because it's not as loose. Mm-hmm. It's a little bit more yeah. afro type. So when yeah. I go to the interview, you know, back when my mom was probably doing, going through the interview process, like it was perms. You got to perm it up. You got to perm it up and, and make it straight because if it's not loose curl mm-hmm. to our exception, we're either going to ask you to change it or we're going to tell you, hey, like this may, may not be the job for you no braids, none of that stuff. Versus a lighter skinned woman, they don't have to necessarily work um, as hard to get the kind of um, acceptance for their hair because mm-hmm. it, it looks it looks more appealing. You see it on magazines a lot more. Mm-hmm. Um, um, white women are curling their hair so it looks kind of loose like that, you know? Mm-hmm. So um, it, it's always, you, you look at different things like even when um, black people were starting to get waves, like that was more of like a looking like the white man versus, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's kind of weird how both races kind of do different things. True. Opposite race, like the white woman curls their hair versus the black woman, they straighten their hair. To mm-hmm. look more it's, it's, you know, you kind of see it. It's well, crazy. I think maybe that's part of the human condition. I mean, white people do the same thing. And all it is, is to elevate yourself above somebody you, you just want to make yourself look better. Well, I really enjoy the direction our conversation is going. Nowhere close to the questions, but I love the points you make. And that's the beauty of organic conversation because it's coming from your heart, what the things that are interesting to you that you get to share. And I appreciate that so much. So one question I wanted to ask you that we didn't touch on was, did your parents sit down and explain racism to you ever specifically? And um, if so, did you like how they 
made you aware? And would you choose to do the same thing for your children in the future? Or have you thought about what you would say and do for your own children? Because time is going to be different from when you were a kid to when you have kids. So is, is the country in a greater state of awareness? Has there been any improvement um, since you were a, a child? Maybe uh, that's a good direction to go with. I'm curious of your, your opinion. Okay. Um, like I said, I started off pretty sheltered um, with everything that was going around. Like, I literally had no idea um, that 9-11 was going on yeah. when, when I was... I was yeah, like, you were so young. Bored, mm -hmm. You know what I mean? So when people were hysterical, I, didn't, I don't even remember. Like, people knew exactly what they were doing. I was mm -hmm. probably eating a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. <laughs> probably. Like I was probably just playing with my toys. Yeah. And I remember my granny used to say, like, yo, I, she fell asleep thinking that it was a movie or something that was on. And she's like, why does it keep replaying? And she told me, yo, this is 9-11. But to get back into racism, um, I, I feel like I learned it. I learned about like the racism and black history stuff in school first a little bit. Mm -hmm. Um but my mindset was like, oh, okay, that was back then. Like, we don't do this now. Yeah, that's uh, how I felt when I learned about I it too. Like, yeah, like, or if it's, or if it's, you know, if we're doing it, like it's way in the South in Alabama. Meanwhile, I'm in Texas. So I'm just thinking, oh, yeah. it's in Alabama or somewhere. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just not, it's not there, but I've, I've definitely have a few, I think, okay, I think I was like eight or seven. And that's when my mom finally had the conversation with me because I was so oblivious. Uh, we were traveling from, um, my granny lived in San Antonio. So from Houston to San Antonio, um, there's this spot called Lulin, Lulin, Texas. And I love their sausage there. I tell them, hey, let's, let's get some sausage. Mm -hmm. you know? So I go there and um, my mom's energy changed as soon as we got into the door. There's a whole bunch of white people there, but I didn't get the energy. I, I was like, hey, mom, what do you, <laughs> I want this, <laughs> give me this. And um, she was just like, hey, come on, let's go. I'm like, what do you mean, let's go? We just got here, so let's go. And we left. And and I was like, why do we leave? I was like, I'll tell you when we get back home. And she was basically telling me, like, when we first got there, everybody was eating. And when we got there, everybody stopped and just looked and looked straight at us. And look at this. Um, me, I didn't get that vibe. Mm -hmm. She saw it because, of course, she's dope. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. And I didn't understand why. Um, but that was just kind of like the subtle racism. Like there's some racism of like it's it's not in your face. And I think with black people, that's the scariest one. Like we kind of not necessarily respect. I'm not giving anybody respect, but we acknowledge um, blatant racism mm -hmm. better than the people that smile in our face and just do stuff behind our back. Mm -hmm. At least with Alabama, we know with Alabama and the Confederate flag, we know where you stand. So we yeah. know what to do and maneuver. But mm -hmm. if you talk to me and ha ha he he my face um, every day, meanwhile, you you undercutting me out of pure racism, that's the scariest of them all because I'm thinking you're on my side and you're thinking I'm an ally. So she kind of had to break that down for me. Like, yeah, it's not that bad. It's not Emmett Till bad now, but it's still happening around. And she remember. Um, because my granny would talk about how she never went to uh, James Coney Island. Um, that's why I used to think about it like this back then. Back then, mm -hmm. my 
granny, um, she was born in 1943. Mm-hmm. So she was in peak, peak yes. uh, segregation. Yes. And there was this, this um, Wortham Theater that they used to go to, but they had to go through the back and go up there. Before they, before they went there, had to go eat. So they went to James Coney Island and, and the owner of that restaurant just threw a fit and told them that you can't go here, da, 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 da. like all that mean and hard stuff that you normally see in all these little 1950s movies that mm-hmm. happened. And she hasn't been to James Coney Island since. So mm. I remember that kind of story, but it wasn't anything recent. Mm-hmm. So my mom and my dad would never really tell me about his personal um, things when it came mm. to racism. He would just tell me about racism, but he would never really just tell me his side. But his my mom finally told me um, a little bit when I was like 12 or 13. Mm-hmm. It was before I was born. Um, and this is when I was like, okay, this is, this is what racism is. Um, he was driving... Um, I think he was just trying to make make it to the gas station in enough time mm-hmm. before his um, car died. I mean, he didn't make it. His car died and like, ran out of gas. But he was close enough um, to walk. He had a gas tank. He could walk over there and go get it. So he locked his car, walked over there, and as he was walking, the police pulled him uh, pulled up and said, hey, what's going on? I said, hey, my gas, I'm getting gas for my car. He said, okay, well, um, can, I, can I get you, can I take you there? I can take you there. You don't have to walk. He goes, oh, okay, bet, cool. So he went in there. Uh, he sat in the front seat, so it didn't make it seem like he was like a, a suspicious. Yeah. And um, he got something. And as they're driving, he he gets on the radio. Like somebody's on the radio saying that they need to go check on this house or something. An incident happened. I don't know if it was a robbery or a violent act happened. And he's like, "Yo, I'm sorry. Like, can we can we go here real quick?" And mm-hmm. then I'll. And dad's like, hey, you know, I'm just glad you give me a ride. Mm-hmm. And he pulled up to the house and he told him, he told him, to, you know, get out with him, um, which was kind of weird. I don't know why he told him to get out with yeah. him. Yeah. Well, get out with him. And as he was walking up to the door, he was asking the woman a question. Basically, like, you know, like the description, how, how do you look or what was going on? And all of a sudden, all, all of a sudden during the conversation, he was just like, was it this man right here? Oh, no. And my dad was just like, whoa, like where where did this come from? Because even if you were to look at what he was writing down, it didn't fit the description of my dad. Uh-huh. I'm 6'3", my dad's like 5'10", but I think the description was like maybe like, maybe over six foot, um, a lighter brown skinned man, my dad's dark. My dad's mm-hmm. a dark man, so a lighter brown skinned man uh, with curly hair, my dad's he wasn't doing all that. <laughs> he wasn't really there like that. So when he said that was him, he just kind of threw him off. Like, well, what is you talking about? Like, you saw me. Like, why did you? Yeah. What was that? And the woman was just like, um, nah, I, I don't think it was him. And the cop was just like, are you sure? And she was like, and she was just glancing at him really well. It's like, Nah, I don't. I don't think it was him. Mm. And then he's like, "Okay, that's you know, that's it." And um, he got all the information, and um, they went back in the car. My dad didn't say a word. Um, he didn't say a word. It was a silent car right back. And he went to the gas station. Um, he got his gas. He drove him back to his car, and he told him, "Hey, you know, he told um, told my dad have a nice day." And he drove off. And no apology. Nothing. It was no interaction after that and awful. 
my dad was been, my dad has been, I mean, he was born in uh, Lake Providence, Louisiana. So, I mean, he's experienced racism and I'm pretty sure there's a lot more instances, uh, instances that he's had mm-hmm. um, in his younger years, mm-hmm. but I would never know until I'm probably like 40 and he's like trying to you know, want to tell me later in his life. Wow. Um, but he, he didn't, he never told me those kind of experiences. He was from my mom, but my mom would be the one that would like tell me about stuff like that, where it's just kind of like, that woman could have trajected my dad's life. You know what I mean? Yes. Like my mom is pregnant with me. And this is kind of like the thing, you know, like one little maybe, no yes or no, like one of her saying just, it may look like him, could have changed. It could have. Conversation. It could have changed everything that happened the rest of that day and months and maybe years, depending on how, how it was portrayed. And it's just kind of like the fact that he wasn't even allowed to get outraged because he was, you know, he's scared. Yes. But even after this, even after this conversation, he still has to be silent and conduct himself in a professional way so that he doesn't get arrested on something else. Uh-huh. And do quote unquote violent or, or rashful or, or whatever they might they might do. So to him to keep his composure and then let it all out at home. I can't imagine. Bad. I can't imagine having feeling the need to walk on eggshells around policemen all the time because any emotion showed could be used against you. Exactly. And it hurts. And it not only hurts the black man, but it it hurts the wife at home because the wife at home had like my mom, like she has to come and, and deal with that, deal with all the things that he was holding in. And he has to let it out because he can't let it out in the real world. So now you're treating your, your wife as a therapist when you really just need a therapist. And it doesn't really help, you know, like it doesn't, it doesn't make for a healthy household if you're continuing to do that all the time. You know, like she's, and my mom is a, a kind person. Don't get me wrong, but that needed to be a professional. Like he needed to go into like real therapy for stuff like that. For sure. Like, you know, and, and instead of, instead he's just rambling and rambling and, and my mom is not going to get the best of my dad on that day. Because he is just, he has so much stuff to talk about, rightfully so. But and he never got closure. So it's closure. kind of like an open wound. And it's going to like sit there between them for a long time, isn't it? Sure. So like, you know, he, you know, he, does, he and he's one of these people that just doesn't look for, look for closure. Like he just closes that door and, and keeps it pushing. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's really sad because there's, there's a lot of things that he can probably learn about himself if he was just to open up and just kind of, talk about some of those things but he has so many closed doors when it comes to different things like that you know it just it's just mm-hmm. don't even hear about it and you don't even know that it happened because he plays a good poker face you know mm-hmm. after everything's said and done because you know okay i don't want my son to you know make it seem like i'm just a mm-hmm. angry whatever yeah and, and you know he, he plays the dad role and it's just like okay well dad is you know here and you're playing and you know that's it. So it's crazy because it, it affects, I don't think a lot of people understand how much it affects that, that black wife. And the whole family unit, probably. Well, I mean, I, I don't blame your parents for not wanting to tell you things because you want to keep your children innocent for as long as possible to the evils of the world. You want to protect their hearts and minds and, and, how they think the world is such a wonderful place, right? You want to protect that (laughs) beauty for as long as you can. But then there's the reality that, you know, 
you are going to succumb to a different reality than most other people. And how do you broach that? I, I just can't imagine the conversations that Black parents have to have with their children and how heartbreaking it is for both the parent and the kids to realize what? People don't look at me and see me the same as everybody else. Yeah, they, yeah, they definitely, um, it was just kind of like, and it was just subtle things um, that, that just kind of come into, uh, come into my mind. You've brought up so many fantastic points, and I've really appreciated your viewpoint in all of these areas. Thank you for speaking to them. Thanks for having me. Um, okay, so what is your tip to make the world a better place? The tip to make the world a better place. Listen, I think listening and not being afraid to ask questions. I think a lot of times uh, when it comes to like, especially like my white, my white friends, they get so hesitant because they don't want to offend anybody, you know? Mm -hmm. and sometimes um, the only reason, the reason why black people get aggressive when certain white people ask questions is because sometimes they think it's common sense and sometimes black people have said things um, over and over to different white people that they're tired of asking the same, in the mm -hmm. answering the same question. And they'll tell you to do research or whatever they do, mm -hmm. kind of get snappy with you. But I, I ask white people to just keep asking the questions. Don't, don't let that discourage you from not answering and asking any questions or being like, okay, well, I, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna put myself in that situation because you know, when I do ask, I'm getting getting the silent treatment or I'm I'm getting a little antsy from, from other black people. I'll say, you know, black people are you know, everybody's different. You know, some people yes. are gonna come and, and, and be cordial. There's mean white people, there's mean black people. Mm -hmm. So don't, you know, and I think because I'm a journalist, I understand that I'm gonna get 20 no's before I get my first yes. Mm -hmm. I understand that. So uh, it's, it's a lot easier for me to conceptualize. But for white people, yeah, just continue to ask questions. Because um, if you don't know, you don't know. That is fantastic advice. And I have to say, I stepped out of my comfort zone to do this. And the questions that I ask, I was very, very nervous that I was going to be offending people. And so the choices were don't ask so that you don't offend and you'll never know, or ask and take the risk of offending and just hope that somebody will be honest with me and say, hey, you know what? You might want to word that a different way, or I'm glad you asked, but you might want to say it like this. You have to put yourself in a vulnerable position if you genuinely want to learn and know about somebody. What are you the most thankful for right now? Uh, I'm, 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 most, I'm most thankful for, for my family. The way they, they brought me up and the way they've given me guidance and knowledge. I don't have this kind of thought process without them. Mm -hmm. uh, so um, I'm taking, and this is done with their flaws, without it. Like I look at their flaws, like, okay, I'm definitely not doing that. <laughs> well, I'm definitely doing this. So I'm mm -hmm. definitely doing that. So I'm, I'm you know, I, I've learned so much from them, even when they had no idea I was, I was picking them apart. So I, I appreciate my family. I'm thankful for my family. Sure. That's beautiful. And lastly, what is your favorite quote? Um, my favorite quote. It was actually on Twitter, I think. Um, the quote, I don't know, I don't even know who this person, I don't even know who came up with this quote, but mm -hmm. this quote is, um, if you don't start now, one year from now, you'll regret it. Mm -hmm. If you don't start right now, one year from now, you're gonna you're gonna realize and ask yourself, why didn't I start it? Why didn't I start a year from now? 
Yeah. Just so much more further away. And I think that that comes from anything with media or anything that you have going on. I think there's a lot of afraid. And I'm, I was I was one too. Just afraid because everything has to be perfect or everything needs to go a certain way. Like I need to get X, Y, and Z covered before I drop this or do this. No, just, just drop it. Just do it. Mm-hmm. Um, because even the stuff that you think is perfect can still be improved. Exactly. Heard that. Even the, the thoughts in my mind, even even when I thought about those, once I put it on there, I said, okay, well, those still need improvements too. So until I get there, you can still just drop down and constantly improve as you drop. Because I mean, no matter how prepared you are, um, you, episode one versus episode 60, there's still going to be a big jump no matter when you start. Exactly. Well, that is beautiful advice. And I have no doubt that you are applying that to your life right now and that I will be seeing you in television, on television, somehow, some way in the future. It's going to be awesome to say, I know him. He's awesome. We had that great talk. So I wish you all the best finding your, your career and um, making your way in this world, Greg. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure to be on here and talk about uh, real life issues. It, it doesn't get it doesn't get discussed enough for me. Um, Good. So there's a, a platform that that's informing people, um, especially people that's not my color. Mm-hmm. Um, thanks. Well, that's wonderful. We're building bridges and we're getting the conversation going, and that's that's the first step so that we can just have relationship. And in relationship you genuinely care what happens to the other. So we have to build these relationships, right? That's that's the goal. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for being with me. I appreciate your time so much. Yes, ma'am. Thank you for having me. I was really surprised and impressed with Greg's view on politics and sports. He completely and reasonably sees both sides I appreciate and learn from his balanced perspective on this issue. He taught me to be non-dualistic even in this, and he brought that same mentality to his insight on how black and white athletes are stereotyped, both positively and negatively. I'm so glad he brought this up. I know I have been guilty of thinking one athlete is just naturally more talented while thinking another must have to work extra hard. This is an area I needed to learn to reframe my thinking in because my thinking is wrong, racist, and overgeneralized. Thank you, Greg, for bringing this to my attention. Greg really educated me on colorism within the black community. I've read a little bit about it over the years, but he fleshed it out for me where I could see and feel its nasty effects through his eyes. I have some article links in the show notes if you're interested in continuing to learn more about the history of colorism in the United States. Black people are not immune from acting like a racist, hurting others because of their faulty assumptions regarding colorism, or showing discrimination towards others. We are all in the process of learning and growing, and we all have the tendency to try to preserve our own self-interests over the benefit of others despite our ethnicity, religion, race, socioeconomic standing, or sexual preference. 
Greg mentioned how one of the coaches he admired the most, Coach Thompson, out of Georgetown, expressed the opinion that black coaches and individuals in the sporting industry are never really given the opportunity to fail. What an impossibly high standard to live up to as a black athlete or coach. But as another legendary coach, Louisville's Rick Pitino recognizes, failure is good. It's fertilizer. Everything I've learned about coaching, I've learned from making mistakes, he says. What a sad double standard we've set in sports and life if one group of people are allowed to learn from their mistakes and another are punished, banished, or damned because of them. This is an example of how our systemic racism problem has seeped into every area of society and wraps its ugly tendrils around the most basic ideas we hold as normal. May we all have the wisdom to critique and extol both sides of a perspective and learn from our failures, as Greg has. Thank you for listening to Gramercy. Remember, there is no them. Just us. See you down the road.